If you would, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I am going to continue on in verses 1 to 11. I'll probably be here two more weeks. I want to try to do the most of the chapter today, and then next week, God willing, just do chapters 9 and 10. There's some really important stuff there. Uh, and so we'll be in 6, 1 to 11. This chapter uh, covers conflict in the church, uh, disputes between Christians in the church, and we're always going to have that because of sin. should not surprise you when there's conflict in our church. Uh, it's, it's always going to be here. So the issue isn't whether or not we'll have conflict, but if we'll handle it as Christians or not. This text is one of the uh, foremost texts in the Bible on how Christians should handle conflict. And so we'll, this should be very applicable to you. It should, how you handle conflict in your marriage, in your friendships, in your parenting, and in your Bible studies, and how to relate to leaders in the church is very, very applicable. Let me read uh, 1 to 11 of chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare, or how dare he, Go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already to defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, you have dealt with us according to your steadfast love in Christ. And so we come now and ask that your spirit would teach us your word and give us understanding of it. We know that your every precept is right, and so teach us to hate every false way. In Christ's name, amen. Chapter 5 concluded with two realities. Uh, it concluded with the church's authority to make judgments. Verse 12, what have I to do with judging those outside the church? It is, not, is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Right? So the end of chapter 5, the church is reminded again strongly of their authority to make judgments. And then secondly, he concludes with the church's relation to the unbelieving world. Right? They aren't to judge 
unbelieving world, but they are to judge the church. They have these, this issue of judgment and the church's relationship to the unbelieving world. And that continues right on into chapter 6. And he applies those same two themes to another issue going on in the church in Corinth. The issue of conflict between believers. Apparently there was some monetary, maybe a business sort of dispute between believers, brothers in the church. And instead of submitting their conflict for resolution to the church, one brother takes another brother before unbelievers for judgment. Now, one of the very hypocritical things here, if you catch it, remember in the beginning of church five, these same people were absolutely unwilling to pass judgment on a man having sex with his father's wife. Okay? So they, they boast of their unwillingness to judge a brother's sexual morality, but when money's involved, <laughs> they'll go to great lengths to pass judgment. <laughs> what hypocrites. Now, that's us, right? When money's involved, when the bottom line is going to be impacted, you'll do things that you otherwise would be very unwilling to do. And so Paul is calling them out on it. It's, it's not that they hate judging people. It's that they're caught up in the spirit of the age of sexual impropriety is okay, but when my bank account gets hurt, then it's, I'll go before unbelievers. So they're wrong in a few ways. They're wrong because they forget who they are. They are saints given the responsibility to make judgments after the end of the world and the new world, even angels. And so, angels, and so they're more than capable of handling these kind of disputes. They've forgotten who they are. They're wrong because they would rather besmirch the gospel and the church before unbelievers in order to win some money. And they're wrong because they would rather uh, get money than lose. They, they would rather take somebody's life than lay down their own life. They're the anti-gospel. They're the antichrist here, in essence. They're doing exactly other than the gospel. And so Paul is teaching them who they are again. He's showing them how they should handle conflict. And then he concludes in verses 9, 10, and 11 with this reminder that if they continue to act like this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in verse 11, he reminds them of who they are in Christ and what they've received in Christ so that they might turn and live as their confession says. So verse 11 is this great reminder of the gospel. But the purpose isn't just to remind us of what we have in Christ. It's to motivate us to live like what we have in Christ, if I can put it like that. Now, I want to take a few moments here to speak to the political things going on in our culture because here we have some teaching on law and court. And it would be, I think, that you're all thinking about this whole Kavanaugh 
business. Uh, and the Bible speaks very clearly to these things. And so since the topic of law and justice is raised in this text, I, I want to bring biblical truth to bear on what we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Now, the first thing to say is what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is shameful. It's awful on both sides. What I want to do is start in Romans 13. So flip back a book, just a few pages, to Romans chapter 13. Here, if you remember, Paul, the apostle, speaks, the inspired apostle, speaks clearly to political realities. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Now, the thing going on here is Paul is setting up a hierarchy in our world. The supreme being is God. He has all authority. And any authority that has authority on earth is only deriving that authority from God. Whether you're a policeman or a mother or a pastor or a politician, you have authority only because the supreme authority has granted you some. So if you work in a at a place of vocation where you have authority over others, don't forget your authority has been given you to steward by God according to God's law. Your authority isn't uh, derived by yourself. It's, it's a gift from God to be used for God's glory. But the state here in Romans 13 has real God-given authority. And they have real God-given authority over matters of justice. It says that they, God has given, uh, the, in verse 4, the state, the government, a sword. The state is an avenger to carry out God's wrath on wrongdoers, on evildoers. That's what the Supreme Court is the ultimate judge of that in our land. They are to mete out justice according to law on those who do right and wrong. Now, as you can see, the church's role in all of this is to speak biblical truth to the state to keep them in within God's bounds. That's what Paul's doing here. He is speaking to the church and to the state, defining our realms of responsibility. And the church's realm of responsibility in relation to the state is to discipline the state when they go outside of their bounds. And the state's role in the church is to punish evildoers when they transgress laws. And uh, he's not metaphorical here when he says they have a sword. The state is allowed to hand down sentences of capital punishment. Now we see this kind of thing happening in John the Baptist in Matthew 14. He speaks against a politician's sexual immorality. Herod had murdered his own brother and taken his brother's wife. And John the Baptist was going around preaching against that. And Herod's new wife, Herod's brother's wife, asked for John the Baptist's head. Herod or John the Baptist was murdered for doing what he should have, calling out the state for its crime. 
Jesus, in part, the motivation of the Jewish political leaders to murder Jesus was because of his threat to them politically. Because he wouldn't stop rebuking them for their political sin. And because he was cutting in on their political profits. And so the, the church should speak out against the state where it transgresses the authority. Which means, of course, you as a Christian, wherever the state goes outside of God's law, you have a biblical mandate to resist it. Jesus is Lord, and that means Judge Kavanaugh isn't. And that means President Trump isn't. And that means your favorite senator isn't. And wherever the derived authority on earth, the state, goes outside of God's law, we as Christians should never submit to it. Because we submit to God. And that is not at all giving you a license to do what you want. A second reality that we've seen, if you turn to 1 Timothy 5, here we have principles for how accusations should be brought against those in leadership. Here it's talking about leadership in the church. It's quoting, however, from Leviticus, which is talking generally about how accusations should be entertained against anyone in leadership. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I am not at all here speaking of whether or not Judge Kavanaugh actually sexually abused uh, Mrs. Ford. He may have. And if so, we leave room for God's wrath. And, And he deserves God's wrath if he did it. But we are humans and we are finite. And God does not give us the authority to entertain accusations except on the evidence of two or three eyewitnesses. Now, eyewitnesses could include DNA, right? They could include video or even confessions. And so, in the case of Judge Kavanaugh, the standard was not met. There was no corroborating witnesses. And then we have the unjust, sinful political maneuvering by the Democrats in this, which was disgusting. And now, let me rebuke you, the Republicans have done the same, and you should be just as angry there as you were in this. If not, you're a political hack just like they are. And we don't want to be political hacks as Christians. We stand for justice. So now I've offended everybody, which was my target. <laughs> and now to something more serious than that is this issue of sexual abuse. Uh, the Me Too movement is, in some regards, a really good thing. There is a lot of sexual abuse by men against women. There's a lot of sexual abuse by fathers against their daughters. There is sexual abuse by people in leadership against women, husbands against their wives, and so on. It is very real, it is prevalent, and it is a sin under certain circumstances, certain circumstances deserving of capital punishment. Rape is a capital crime. 
And we in the church should demand justice in this regard. And where this happens in the church, if you are, have been, are, or, or will in the future be abused, please know that in me and in our elders in our church, you will, uh, will listen. We'll take it very seriously. We will deal with it as we should. We will not hide it. We will not blame. We will not shame you. It will be hard. It will be embarrassing. But it will be worth it. So we will protect. That's what we'll do. On the other side of it, we know, even in Scripture, that there are some times where accusations of sexual abuse are false and uses a weapon to destroy somebody else. Joseph and Potiphar. Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph sexually trying to use her. A high school classmate of mine accused a teacher in high school of something like this, only six months later after destroying his life, saying it was a lie, it was a dream. This does happen. So the simple thing is, we want justice where justice is demanded. And we don't want to be those who react to allegations on either side. We want to seek for the truth. Now, thirdly, what was this all about, this Kavanaugh thing? Let's get to the heart of it. I think the heart of this is abortion. That's what this is about. When a year ago or so, when Justice Gorsuch was nominated to replace Scalia, it didn't tip the balance of the court. Kavanaugh's appointment may. He's more moderate than I would like. He wouldn't have been my first choice. Um, He hasn't come out clearly against the murder of unborn children. In fact, he has seemed to be soft on it saying that uh, precedent should dictate here. I don't know if he's just saying political things in order to get nominated or if he'll have some backbone when it comes to unborn children being dismembered. Uh, But the reason that this went so ape crazy is because we have as a country murdered, dismembered tens of millions of unborn children. And criminals who do such things, will go to great lengths to cover up their crimes. And that's what we saw. That's what we're seeing. When you're guilty of 50, 60 murders, 60, 50, 50, 60 million murders, this is what you see. Now, the Christian faith is a faith based on human sacrifice. Christ the God who became man, gave his life for us. The American faith is also built on human sacrifice. But it's exactly the opposite. We demand lives be spent for our comfort and convenience. Christ came to give his life, to give us life, We as a culture demand you give me your life so that I can have my convenience and my comfort and my whatever I want. That's what's going on in this whole thing. 
We demand that a woman give us her body to satisfy our lust through pornography and fornication. We demand that a child be cut up into bits so that we don't have to deal with the fruit of our sexual immoralities. And when those kind of things are on the line, you get what you saw. And the only liberation from the crime of human abortion isn't the nomination of a Supreme Court justice. It isn't one political party being in power or another. It is the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. And that's what we as a church should stand for above all else. That's it. That does not mean we should not speak about political things. That means we should speak about political things. It also means that we as a church should be speaking and investing in the fight to end human child sacrifice. It means you should. It should be a part of your prayer life. It should be the determining factor in who and who you do not vote for. It should be a monetary investment. And where you have opportunity, it should be something that you invest your time in, your talents in. That could be by helping somebody who's running politically against this. This could be by investing in adoption. could be by helping a young woman who's pregnant and needing help. It could be by your own repentance over being involved in an abortion. Well, that's what I think is going on. Now, um, I am glad to have a more conservative uh, Supreme Court justice on. It makes me all the more glad that former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was not elected. I find myself continually stunned by how giddy I am over that. Because of this, who she would have nominated Supreme Court would have been awful. I am not at all thinking Donald Trump is a decent human being. He isn't. I wish he were. And so we can rejoice in that. But I think if you have any historical uh, understanding of the Supreme Court, conservative justices have often disappointed us. And so I'd encourage you to pray for him. I'd encourage you to speak up where Judge Kavanaugh gets it wrong or right. But even more so, I encourage you to think biblically about these things. Uh, because it is about conflict, and we saw it. So back to 1 Corinthians 6. I don't have a neat way to bridge that, so we're just going to bridge it. <clears throat> so Paul is talking here about conflict in the church and believers taking other believers to unbelieving uh, courts. So again, he's dealing with a central theme, trouble in the church, division and conflict. This has been a major theme in Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. So conflict is a major theme in this letter. And here again, we have more conflict, more division, where over money, believers are taking other believers to law. 
an unbelieving court. So again, conflict is nothing new in the family of God. If you remember back to the Exodus story, when God led his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, to Mount Sinai, uh, Moses is with all of God's people, and Moses' father-in-law comes to the camp. Remember that? Exodus 18. And do you remember what Moses' father-in-law sees Moses doing all day long? The text notes from morning until evening. Do you remember? He was settling disputes all day long. That was his full-time job. He had no time for anything else. He was the lone elder, and all he did was listen to God's people griping about God's people. That's all he did. He was like a mom with six little kids. You know, and he got home at night and, ah, right? That's all he did. This is nothing new. Acts 15, just shortly after the church is birthed, the, the gospel is spreading, and they already, in its early years, need a council to settle a fight. And the fight was an important one whether or not one could be a Christian without being circumcised according to the custom of Moses. So conflict is nothing new in the family of God. In fact, one of the reasons, brothers and sisters, that God gives you elders is to help you settle your conflicts. That's what we're for. And we don't do that enough here. You guys should be bringing more of your fights to us. It's our job. I mean that, seriously. Your marriage fights, your children fights, your rebellious kid fights, your monetary fights. That's what we're here for. Uh, now, well, we'll leave that. All right. So Paul is rebuking. So Paul is, as you see in um, verse 7, he is rebuking them for their having lawsuits at all. Conflict is always the result of sin. But he's mainly rebuking them for how they're handling the conflict. Right? That they're handling it by bringing the conflict to unbelievers. Paul uses really strong language here. Verse 1, how dare you? Remember when your mom said that to you? Like that, that was only used in very, very serious instances. This is Paul, how dare you? What they're doing here, he uses language that he doesn't use in verse 5 about the man in incest. What they're doing here is awful. And the awful thing is that they're dragging the glory of God, they're dragging the gospel, they're dragging the church in the mud before the unbelieving world. That's the crime here. Now, just a, 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 a couple of quick things. Paul isn't saying that believers should never make use of unbelieving courts or the court system. If you're dealing a believer with an unbeliever, that would be a legitimate use of the divorce. Believers in the church, if we're settling these people, believers might go to unbelieving law people to get advice on how to handle it. That could happen. 
If you are summoned before the court, you can't say to them, I'm a believer. Right? You'll end up in cuffs, in jail, and you deserve it. Right? If you are dealing with sins that are also illegal, sexual abuse, stealing, and murder, you will have to appear before the unbelieving magistrate. He also, since the issue isn't just the court system, but it's unbelieving, if you are in a cult or a country where the court system was believers, that would be legitimate then. The issue is the unbeliever here. Now, so what Paul is saying is two things. To have lawsuits is already defeat. Look at verse 7 again. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? The argument is built upon what is to be your and my controlling heartbeat of a believer, that God be glorified. Believers are to be utterly committed to the glory of God such that we would suffer any loss rather than His glory be besmirched. That that should be the driving motivation of our lives. That we would never, ever be willing to have God's glory be lessened and we would suffer any cost rather than that happen. And, it's, and it was just the other way around in this church. When money was on the line, they were proving their real allegiance. That's what this is about. Jesus said, no servant can have two masters. No servant can have two masters. And they're proving here who their master is. That's what's going on here. And their master is money. Their master is the almighty dollar. Their master, their Lord, is worldly possessions. So this is the sin of idolatry here. and That's convicting to me, if it isn't convicting to you. I have gotten angry with people about money issues way more than any other issues, right? This is something that is true for us as humans. It should be a rebuke to us. You love money. You worship it. It motivates you. It controls you as only God should control you. So that's what Paul's saying. We should be willing to be defrauded. We should be willing to be wronged so long as God's honor and God's glory is held in high honor. Second, Paul is saying, believers should submit their conflicts with other believers to the church. That's the simplest principle for you and I to draw out of this. Consider again Moses and the early church. Paul says that in eternity, believers will judge the world. Paul says in eternity, believers will judge angels. Doesn't even go into explanation. He doesn't even cite a reference. He just says, after Christ's return, the church will judge the world. The church will judge angels. And Paul says, our discipleship now is to be trained to do that then. 
And the way that we're trained to judge the world and judge angels after the end is to judge disputes now. And so when you have a conflict among other believers, you shouldn't stuff it. You shouldn't nurse a grudge or bitterness. You shouldn't go around trying to stack the jury by gossiping about it. You should bring it to the church, to the elders, to get it settled. Now, where might that happen? Well, how about a marriage dispute? I have, in my 15 years or so as a pastor, dealt with marriage problems. And typically, by the time I'm involved, the marriage is already finished. They have spent 10 years fighting, 20 years fighting, and then they come to me and I want a divorce and I'm done with it, I'm sick of it. And my first thing is, what have you been doing the last 10 years? You should bring your marriage stuff to us. You're both sinners. You're both going to handle this poorly. You need Elders who care about you, who objective, who know God's word, who care about you to help settle this. That'd be one. Don't hide it. My goodness. Look at how many, how many of you are married? How many of you have had a conflict in the past week? Just don't put your hand down. You're lying. <laughs> how many of you are in, don't raise your hand. How many of you are in ongoing conflict? Why are you acting like you're not in conflict? Why are you lying? Guys, our church is the kind of church where it's, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. I fight with my wife. I, I, I fight with my wife. I want to win. And you do too. <laughs> and your kids hate it, by the way. They hate it. And all you're doing is training your children that the church is no help to your marriage. Did you get some help? Would you show some humility? Second, in your parenting troubles, your kids are going to resist your parenting authority if you try to exercise it. Your daughter is going to rebel against you at some point. Maybe. Why don't parents... Bring their, their child's stuff to get help. If your son is repeatedly talking back to you and you have yet to find a solution, the elders will be a solution. I have seen young men talk back to their fathers and rebuke them in private, <laughs> and their fathers remarked of their sons like a different kid. There is authority given to the elders in that. How about just the friendship disputes in our church? Where you've been wronged by somebody or you think you've been wronged by somebody? That's conflict that could be brought. Maybe there's business issues you have with other believers in the church. I want to urge you to take this up. So in review, we shouldn't as believers take our disputes before unbelievers unless they're matters of 
against law, illegal stuff. We should be willing to lose and be wronged and be defrauded rather than see God's glory lessened in the gospel and in the church before unbelieving world. And we should take up our God-given authority to settle our disputes among our brothers and sisters by appealing to the church for help. That's what's going on. Because ultimately the gospel is a conflict settlement, right? We were at enmity with God because of our sin. And God sent his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty so that we could be at peace with God. And so our God is a God of peace and order. Our God is a God of wanting unity, and he has given the church in order to do that in our lives, in our marriages, in our so on. And so let's make use of it. So the charge is this. I do want you to leave here knowing the freedom you have in the gospel. So this week, I encourage you to get into the Bible and take note, especially of those areas where you see all that Christ has done for you and the freedom that he has given you. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.